you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to, to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am, very well, I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing, that this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. Uh, it is my privilege to uh, kick us off this morning into uh, this short series in 2 Peter. And this is, as the name suggests, uh, Peter's second letter that has, by God's grace and providence, been kept for us as a part of God's authoritative word. His major purpose for writing this letter is to encourage 
the church to stand firm in the truth of the gospel, especially in the face of false teaching regarding the return of Jesus. In his first letter that Mike mentioned a moment ago, was written to strengthen Christians in the face of the external pressures and hardships. And now in this second letter, it's to shore up the foundations of their faith in the face of internal tensions and false teachings. He wants to exhort these Christians to remember the truth of the gospel and to live in light of that. The theologian Jonathan Gibson summarises the message of 2 Peter in three words, ethics by eschatology. He's effectively saying that Peter is calling these saints to live in light of the return of Christ, to have the way they live their lives be decided by believing the foundational truths regarding the promises of Jesus. Now, every single person on the planet lives today according to their beliefs about tomorrow. Buddhists live in light of tomorrow's karma. Muslims live according to the five pillars of Islam, uh, believing they will enter paradise. Hindus do good works now, believing it will elevate them to higher classes through reincarnation. Uh, And even secular humanists live with the end in mind. However, for them, they don't believe there is an afterlife and therefore eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But for Christians, if Jesus has come, has lived perfectly, died sacrificially and risen triumphantly with the promise to come again to claim his bride, the church, then we as the church should live in light of that truth. So with this, let's pray that God would help us to understand His Word and what He is saying to us through it today. Let's pray. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, as we live among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And well, in, uh, in the first chapter of uh, like the Apostle Peter is wanting to remind the church uh, and double down on the truths of who Jesus is and what this means for the people of God. We're going to spend most of our time this morning in verses 3 to 11. Um, but I find it fascinating how Peter ends this first chapter with a reminder about God's Word, about the truth of God's Word. Verses 16 to 21 contain arguments for why uh, His Word, as an apostle, should be trusted and why the Scriptures should be trusted. Firstly, he says that he himself was an eyewitness of the majesty of Jesus as he got to see it on the Mount of Transfiguration, which you can read about in Matthew chapter 17. In this moment, he, along with a couple of other apostles, uh, heard the audible voice of God say, uh, speaking to Jesus, that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Secondly, Peter finishes this first chapter by calling his audience's attention to the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture by reminding the church uh, in verses 20 and 21 that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no 
prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Church, this is how we come to our Bibles today, knowing that it is God's Word, that it has been breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3. It's important to start here because Peter is going to open this first chapter by reminding the people of what God has done and how that should cause us to live. His reliance upon the witness of Scripture is key and you and I need to be reminded also that the Bible, the 66 books that make up the Bible uh, of the Old Testament and the New Testament are God's authoritative, sufficient and true word that contain all that we need for our life and godliness. The Westminster Shorter Catechism helps us understand what the Bible is and why God gave it to us. In question two, it asks, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The answer is the Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. And it goes on with question three, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And this is what Peter sets out to accomplish uh, through to Peter in the face of increasing false teaching, which is still a genuine threat for you and I today. Christians need to be constantly reminded of the truth and what that means for how we live in response to that truth. As I said before, Peter wants to give his readers an assurance of their salvation. He wants to encourage them to live in light of what Jesus has accomplished and he wants them to stand firm in that. Uh, There's an image coming up on the screen. This guy is called Vince Lombardi and he was the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, which is an NFL team, an American football team. Uh, They're based in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, And he was famous for how he used to begin each new season with his team. He would meet the team in the locker room before the season started and holding out an American football, he would say, gentlemen, this is a football. And he would show them how the football was made and then he'd take them out onto the, onto the field. He'd show them where the end zones are, where you score the touchdowns. He would show them where the, the out boundaries are, where they can't run over. Um, and he would start this and do this every year as if these elite athletes had never heard of the game of NFL before and as if they'd never seen uh, an American football pitch before. He pretty much just gives them a rundown of the most basic elements of the game. And in a way, this is what Peter is doing here in our text this morning. Peter's writing this letter from a Roman prison and he knows that his end is in sight. He doesn't want these Christians to waver in their faith once he's gone. And so instead of giving them some new fanciful teaching, he doubles down on the basic truths of the gospel because he is convinced that it's the gospel that preserves the faith of Christians. He's reminding us of the most basic elements of the Christian faith because he knows that you and I 
often forget. We too easily get caught up in the complexities of our lives, the distractions of our sins, and we let the basics of the gospel slip from our minds and our hearts. And it's in these moments when you and I are at our most vulnerable that false teaching can cause the most devastation to our faith. Peter is adamant about this. If you've got your Bibles, uh, keep them open to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Right now, we're going to read verses 12 through to 15. He says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. What a remarkable attitude towards life that Peter has. He he knows his days on earth are about to end, but his conviction on what will happen to him and the church of Jesus gives him a sure hope and he does not have to fear this end, but he wants to make the most of the time he has left to encourage these Christians to trust in Jesus and grow in their living according to these gospel truths. So what are these things which Peter wants Christians to be able to recall at any time? Well, let's start back at verse 1 and we'll read for a little bit and then we'll talk. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, stopping there for a moment, there are some important things to see before we move into the next chunk of verses. Peter is serious about his order of writing. Before he gets to what could more closely be considered uh, the imperatives of the gospel or our responsibilities because of the gospel, he wants to reaffirm the order of salvation. And he does this from the very beginning. Phrases like, obtained a faith equal of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ. He's highlighting that the faith that we have is received uh, and it is himself received as a gift from God. It's not something you and I have managed to conjure up in ourselves. These Christians and you and I today have this faith by the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ. Not because you and I earned it through good works or because God somehow owes us this righteousness. No, Scripture tells us that all of our works of righteousness are but filthy rags and that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are therefore justly deserving of God's anger and His righteous judgment, which is our death. But because of God's abundant mercy and kindness, even when we were still sinners and enemies of God, He sent Jesus as the propitiation for our sin. Now, this word propitiation is a word dripping with gospel beauty and hope. 
uh, to imagine what this word is communicating, we can imagine that when we stand before the Father, He sees our sin and our rebellion against Him, and He is rightly and justly angry with us for our sin, and there must be a penalty for that sin, because Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus stands in our place and takes those wages of death upon himself as a substitute for you and I. The innocent dies in place of the guilty. Now, this by itself is an amazing act of God's kindness towards us, but it isn't yet complete. Instead of death holding Jesus down in the grave, he raises him to life with victory over sin and death because he was never guilty of it in the first place. And now when the Father looks upon us, he sees his glorious Son clothing you and I in his own righteousness. I imagine... Uh, this like light refracting through a diamond. One ray hits the diamond and passing through it refracts into many different beautiful colours. God's righteous wrath against our sin passes through Jesus and refracts as spiritual blessing, as eternal life and as all things that pertain to life and godliness, as Peter goes on to explain from verse 3. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make Oh, sorry, let's stop there for a second. Just too keen to read the Bible. <laughs> Again, note the, the passive nature of the verbs that Peter's using. His divine power has granted through the knowledge of Him who called us, by which He has granted His precious and very great promises, that through them we become partakers. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the Christian gospel in the first instance does not ask us to do anything. It first of all proclaims and announces to us what God has done for us. Which leads into the next few verses. And again, we need to be reminded of Peter's order of salvation and his order of writing in this letter. Because we can come to verses like we find in uh, 5 through to 11 and we can easily forget the basic truths of God's initiation and preservation of our salvation and we can deceive ourselves or be deceived by uh, teaching that places the emphasis on our doing. Now, I've already used one football metaphor today, but I'm going to use another one, but from a different code, so it's okay. This time, I'm referring to European football, otherwise known as soccer, here in Australia. Uh, Hannah and I have been watching the Disney docu-series, Welcome to Wrexham, wherein you follow the story of Wrexham Football Club being bought by Hollywood actors. Uh, what stood out to me as I was watching this is that before these wealthy actors brought millions of dollars to the club, it was being run effectively by a volunteer fan-based association. 
And at one time, uh, the story tells us of the stadium needing repairs, uh, but the club didn't really have the money. And so the fans sort of get together. They start this initiative to purchase bricks with the reward of having your name etched on those bricks. And so there's this photo of yeah, all these names that you can't make out because it's a really low-quality photo, but you get the point that there's a lot of names etched on a lot of bricks. They're trying their hardest to pull their resources together to keep this stadium and this club afloat. However, despite their best efforts, they weren't able to really accomplish the repairs as needed, and the club continued to have financial uh, trouble, and the team was falling further down the ladder with less and less chance of promotion. It wasn't until these millionaire actors came in to save the day by purchasing the club and throwing their cash around, uh, the, the, club, the, fans, the club and the fans needed a benefactor. And you'll have to watch to find out what happens. Sometimes we can come to a section of text like 2 Peter 5 to 11 and think to ourselves, yes, I've found the part where I finally get to do something to earn my salvation. Finally, I'm going to be able to show God that I'm worthy of being saved. I can now prove my worth. However, let's let the doctor correct us once again. He says, before God calls upon a man to put anything into practice... He has made it possible for man to put it into practice. Before there can be activity, there must be life, there must be muscles, there must be faculties and the propensities. And this is the position of the Christian. They have been given all this. They have these muscles, the spiritual muscles, all things pertaining to life and godliness are given. Church, this is how we must approach this section of 5 through to 11, absolutely convinced that we only have the capacity for increasing in these traits because God, in His kindness towards us, in Jesus, has given me all that I need to be able to do it. So let's read. Verse 5, For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind." having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Peter tells us to furnish our faith with virtue or moral goodness, This is a simple way to say, live like one who has been raised from death to life. Do not live in the old dead ways, live in our new alive ways. The Heidelberg Catechism gives us a, we've been very educational this morning with these catechisms, but gives us a helpful snapshot of what this means. Uh, The question is, what is the coming to life of the new nature? 
The answer, it is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. Then ask, but what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to His glory and not those based on our own opinion or on precepts of men. Adding moral goodness or virtue to our faith is not the practice of just adding whatever good thoughts or deeds we think are right. It is knowing the will of God by His Spirit and by His Word and by His grace, putting those things into practice. And we grow in this moral goodness as we grow in our knowledge. The more that we know and understand God's law, God's word and his character, the more we will grow in our moral goodness and the more our faith will be firmly established in God's truth. Now, there's a caution for us here, though. In a room like this, where there are many highly educated people, like I don't think I've come across more PhDs in my entire life than when I first started coming to this church. The warning is to our reliance upon our own understanding. Now, praise God for big brains, for big intellects. Praise God that He uses intelligent minds to uh, help many people and better our country. But the warning is not to rely on our own intellects, to not rely on our own understanding. Paul, in Ephesians 1, 17-18, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. I don't think it's a, a long bow to draw to suggest that Paul is saying through this prayer that without the spirit of wisdom granting revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, that our capacity to understand these things is extremely low, even for the highest of IQs among us. Increasing knowledge is a, a gracious gift of the spirit for our deepening trust in God and his gospel. And to knowledge, we are instructed to add self-control. Uh, now, this self-control is a huge part of the Christian life because it puts us in direct contrast to uh, the lack of self-control that defines the sinful world. Peter has already told us in verse 4 that we, Christians, have become partakers of the divine nature and have escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This desire or epithumia in the Greek is not just desire for things in general, but it's alluding to a sinful, lustful desire. A desire that is ignoring the gifts and blessings we have received in Jesus and is sinfully desiring the things of the world that Peter says are responsible for corrupting the world. This can be a difficult one for us to get our heads around because it infiltrates so much of our life and can often be such a small matter of degrees between a healthy, godly appreciation of enjoyable things and a sinful thirst for more. It's often a blurry line. You 
think about the desire for a nice home or a nice spouse, for including the uh, sorry, for indulging in the pleasures of this life. Like Mike made a bit of a sort of smart Alec comment about like, are we are we giving more to to the gospel, or are we giving more to our living circumstances? And um, you know, that's a genuine consideration that we have to bring before the throne of God. Where are we putting our money, our treasures, our desires, our hopes in the things that this life can offer us or in the things that God's kingdom can offer us? Church, God has gifted us so many wonderful things to enjoy and they are genuinely meant to bring us, bring us pleasure and a sense of satisfaction. But these things easily become sinful when we become enraptured by them and turn them into idols in our hearts. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, as we're told in Galatians 5, which means it is something that we can only grow in as we are being transformed by the Spirit. It's yet another measure of God's kindness towards you and I that He gives us self-control through his Holy Spirit, that we graciously grow in it as we become more and more sure of the grace of God through his son, Jesus. So once again, we can see that our adding these qualities to our faith cannot be grounds for our self-boasting, but continues to be only possible by God's grace. To self-control, we are to add steadfastness or perseverance This word's used 32 times in the New Testament alone and is usually referring to uh, perseverance in the face of uh, persecution or trials. And in the context of our passage this morning, Peter is meaning that uh, we must remain steadfast in our trust and understanding of the truth as taught by the apostles and recorded for you and I in Holy Scripture. As we'll see over the next couple of weeks, uh, Peter is wanting to shore up these saints' faith in the face of false teachings that are causing people to second-guess even the returning of Jesus and therefore the entire gospel message itself. If we are furnishing our faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control, we will be equipped to remain steadfast in the truth, even in the face of false teaching. And to these qualities, we should add godliness or piety, a a devotion to God, a growing reverence for who God is and all that He has done. More often than not, the more we get to know someone, the more casual we become in our conversations uh, with them. Uh, Our language seems to become more casual, our responses become more casual. We go from more formal text messages to replying purely by emoticons. And this is usually a good thing in our human relationships, but with God, as we come to know Him more, we should be growing in the knowledge of His utter holiness. The scenes in the book of Revelation of angels and heavenly creatures around God's throne in eternal worship will be the growing sense we have of who God is and how we are to relate to Him. Add devotion, a piety to our lives. To godliness, add brotherly affection and love. The Apostle John tells us that these qualities, more than others, are qualities which show the world that God loves us 
and that we have been saved by him. It's a selfless love, a sacrificial love which is epitomised by denying ourselves and loving and seeing our brothers and sisters, serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's an affection and love that is characterised by the same type of love that God has for you and I through Jesus. A love that lays down one's life, puts the needs of others before our own and looks to serve others, not to be served by others. And Peter makes it clear that those who are growing in these qualities, those that are confirming their calling and election, their faith in Christ, are those that are having richly provided for them an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Church, this is our great hope. Jesus did come. He did live perfectly obedient to God's law. He died our death on the cross. He was raised triumphantly to life three days later. He did ascend to the right hand of the Father where he is interceding for you and I right now. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead and take his people into eternal glory with himself. As the band comes, I'm going to finish this morning by praying a prayer from the collection of Puritan prayers called the Valley of Vision. Uh, And this particular prayer is called Divine Promises. I thought it appropriate to have in our minds and our hearts as we go out into this week to be thanking God for his goodness towards us in Christ, but his great and very precious promises that uh, not only help us understand our salvation, but teach us to walk in it, that we may be living as those who know and believe and trust in the return of our Saviour, and not as those who believe in any other worldview. Let's pray together. Our glorious covenant God, All your promises in Christ Jesus are yes and amen, and all will be fulfilled. You have spoken them, and they will be done. You have commanded them, and they will come to pass. Yet we have often doubted you, have lived at times as if there were no God. Lord, forgive us that death in life when we have found something apart from you, when we have been content with ephemeral things. But through your grace, we have repented. You have given us to read our pardon in the wounds of Jesus, and our soul does trust in him, our God incarnate, the ground for our life, the spring of our hope. Teach us to be resigned to your will, to delight in your law, to have no will but yours, to believe that everything you do is for our good. Help us to leave our concerns in your hands, for you have power over evil, and bring from it an infinite progression of good until your purposes are fulfilled. Father, bless us with Abraham's faith that staggers not at promises through unbelief. May we not instruct you in our troubles, but glorify you in our trials. Grant us a distinct advance in the divine life. May we reach a higher platform and leave the mists of doubt and fear in the valley and climb to the hilltops 
of eternal security in Christ by simply believing he cannot lie or turn from his purpose. Give us the confidence that we ought to have in him who is worthy to be praised and who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.